Jane Pennington AG. Um, I am delighted to be with you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Alyssa, and I'm an elder here at Pennington. Um, you may have seen me on the stage before doing InterVarsity ministry updates. Um, I've been on staff with InterVarsity for 10 years, and so I spend my days ministering to college students and helping to build and plant witnessing communities on local college campuses. Um, you may have met my husband, Danny, who's also an elder, and you may have seen my two crazy boys running around at some point. They are four and almost two, so if there's chaos, it's probably them. Um, Danny and I have been married, it'll be eight years at the end of this month. Um, but five years ago, uh, Danny and I bought our first home. And back then, when we bought our first home, we were young and wild and free because we didn't have kids yet. And so we had this thing that was called time that feels really interesting to me now. Um, and this thing called energy that really is interesting to me now. Um, but so we had these grand plans that we were gonna do all of these home renovations before we moved in. We extended the lease of our apartment for a month. And we were like, we're gonna get it done. We painted every room, did the floors, and so we, re we recruited all of these friends and family to come and help us um, because we only had a month. So one day, my dad was in the living room, dining room section, kind of overseeing the painting there, and I was painting in another section of the house, and the day ended, it grew dark, and... Um, Thankfully, they had just finished, and it was great because now that color was done. My dad, like, hammered the paint can closed, and he washed all the paintbrushes. And I walked into the room, and he's literally folding the tarp as I walked in. And if you have ever worked with me, I know I've worked with some of you on ministry-related tasks before. If you've ever worked with me, the way that the Lord has gifted me, for better or for worse, is I uh, survey a project, big picture, and then I can pick out all the little structural nuances and tell you what you need to do to make it better. Um, so I walk into the room, and I survey this room, and I noticed it right away. Um, there is this, I, I don't really know what it's called, but this section of the wall, like a foot, that hangs down um, between, it like separated the living room and dining room section. And I noticed that on this strip of wall, they had only done one coat of paint. And I turned to my dad and I was like, dad. And he was like, what? And I'm like, there's only one coat of paint there. And he was like, no, 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 there's definitely two. And I was like, no, dad, that's definitely one coat of paint. And he looked at it and he was like, we'll, we'll do it another day. And I smiled and I nodded. I didn't want to say anything because the man spent his whole day painting my house. Um, but I was like, yeah, I'm never painting that wall. Like, there's no way that I'm getting out this paint can we had retired and getting all those paintbrushes dirty again and putting a tarp out after a month of painting. And sure enough, five years later, we moved. We never painted that strip of wall. Um, but I remember about a week after we had moved in, I was meeting with my mentor at the time. And she's like, how do you love living in the new place? And I was like, yeah, it's great. Except there's this strip of wall that only has one coat of paint, and it's driving me nuts. And she looked at me, and she said, I think that's good for you. She was like... I actually think it's helpful for us when our homes have imperfections because it helps us not get too caught up with this being our home here. And it actually makes us long for the home that we will have, the kingdom that is to come. Of course, I was frustrated. I mean, I wanted her to tell me that, of course, my house should be perfect before I move into it. 
Um, but she's right that the imperfections in our lives, be it a silly paint color on a wall or the bigger sorrows of our lives, help us long for the kingdom that's to come. If you've been journeying with us, uh, we are in a series in the book of Romans, um, and uh, the book of Romans was written by Paul. It was a letter to the church at Rome, um, where there were both Jew and Gentile Christians living together and having um, discord. There was conflict within the church, and he wrote this letter to them. So we're picking up today in the second half of chapter 8. Um, you can, the text will be behind me, or you can open your Bibles. We will be in the New Living Translation, starting in verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The book of Genesis tells us that when God created the world, it was good. We were in perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. There was no conflict in that. Creation itself was literally perfect. There was no disease or natural disaster or, or death or anything. It was perfect. But then humans chose their own way. We disobeyed the commands of God, which is sin. We turned from God. And in that moment, something broke. The perfect creation God had created was no longer perfect. Now there was death and brokenness that entered the picture. And in that moment, God set a plan to restore humanity back to himself. And eventually Jesus came and he died the death that we deserved. He paid the price for our sin so that we could be restored to the Father. And that's essentially where we pick up in present day. Jesus has come. That's what we live in. That's the reality that we live in. But that's not the end of the story. God is still writing this story where one day the resurrection will happen and the new creation will come. Heaven will literally exist on earth again like it was intended to be in the garden. That is coming one day. But until then, we live in this space where Jesus has come, but the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness, and we live in the already but not yet. And as we live in this already but not yet, Paul tells us that all of creation is groaning. Um, I remember uh, in college, I took general chemistry, and I remember learning about the second law of thermodynamics. Hang with me here, because I promise it's really good. If you're not a science nerd like me, it's good. Um, so the second law of thermodynamics talks about entropy. And it talks about how a system, whether it is an open or closed system, is bent toward chaos, is bent toward death and decay. That literally, the DNA of the created world that we live in, every molecule, every system is bent toward death and decay. That unless an external force comes into that system and adds work into that system, it is bent toward chaos. 
that's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around. And so my professor gave us this example where he said, you know, let's say you have a playroom. And let's say you have two boys ages four and almost two, like I know. Um, and they come into this playroom, and within seconds, there are goldfish crumbs everywhere and toys everywhere. And it's just absolute chaos within seconds. And you, mom or dad, have to be an external force and come into this room and do some work and clean it up because it is bent toward chaos. That makes sense to us. But he said, even a closed system, even if you shut that door for 10 years, no one goes in for a decade, no kid comes in and throws toys around, even so, it is bent toward chaos, because when you open that door in 10 years, what will you see? You will see dust and cobwebs, and it will be chaotic, and you, mom or dad, will have to enter in some work into that system and fix it. And so science is literally telling us that all of creation is groaning. All of creation is bent toward death and decay in this present state that we're in. And Paul says that it is groaning, creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Um, I have now birthed two boys, both without any pain medication, so I can tell you all about the groans of childbirth. Um, but he says, it is like the groans of childbirth. It's not this meaningless pain, it's actually a meaningful pain that creation is going through. My sister is due with her first um, at the end of this month, and so she's asking me all these questions about labor and delivery, and, and how is she gonna get through the pain, and what is that gonna be like? And what I said to her is like, you know, when I stub my toe, when I run into a couch, and I stub my toe, and I cry out in pain, that is meaningless pain. That is like, I am gonna stumble for the next 24 hours because I was dumb, and I ran into the couch. Like, it's stupid pain. But with childbirth, every contraction that comes is purposeful, is meaningful. It is literally birthing new life. A baby is on the other side of that. So Paul is saying that creation is groaning with a meaningful pain because it is literally giving birth to a new version of itself. He continues on and he says in verse 23, and we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we, mu we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Creation is groaning People are groaning, and Paul says that even the Christian groans inwardly. We, Christians, have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have this foretaste of what is to come. The Spirit lives in us, making us internally alive, helping us to um, overcome sin and giving, giving us freedom from sin, and he is making us more like Christ, but we only have the first fruits. 
We live in this already, but not yet. And one day we will be made perfect. One day even our bodies will be resurrected and it will be just like God's original plan that existed in the garden. We know that we are not all that we will one day be and all of our best days lie before us in the resurrection. And we wait for that day. We wait patiently and eagerly, but as we wait, we also groan in our present state. Um, over the last several years, I've had weird health issues um, that have been annoying, and some have been related, some have been unrelated. And it's made me frustrated with my body when, when things aren't functioning the way that they should be. Um, most notably, there was about a year um, that my body felt like it just was like, it broke. Um, I had had two like basically back-to-back -back pregnancies, it felt like, um, and my back and my hips were all out of whack and there were actually weeks on end that I couldn't physically get out of bed. And I had a two-year-old and a newborn and I couldn't do anything. And I was frustrated. I was frustrated because there was a dream and a picture that I had of what I would be like as a mom and that wasn't panning out. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. And I remember praying and I said, God, why would you allow this to happen to me now in this stage of my life where it requires so much physical um, energy from me? Why would you allow this to happen? And in that, I felt like God spoke to me, and I felt like he said, this is not the body that you will one day have. And in that, my perspective, my perspective shifted, and I began to long for the resurrection. And now every day, every time I have something that's weird, or I feel frustrated, or I have a pain, um, I think of the fact that I will have a resurrected body one day, and I will be pain-free one day, and I'll be able to pick my kids up without it killing me one day. It's not the body that I will one day have. So what is causing you to groan at the moment? Is there a physical or mental or emotional pain that you are currently enduring? Paul talks about how this pain that we go through, that all of creation is going through, that we as people go through, is a meaningful pain, is pain akin to childbirth. And when you go to one of those childbirth classes and they teach you how to overcome the pain in childbirth, they tell you to bring with you a focal point, an image of something to look at that you can actually focus your attention on so that when a contraction comes, you actually focus on that thing instead of the pain. And the number one thing that they tell you to bring is your latest sonogram picture. Um, uh, technology is just crazy these days, and so uh, your third trimester ultrasound, you can literally see the baby's face. And they tell you to bring with you this picture of your baby so that when a pain comes, instead you can look at your baby, this baby you've never met who's in your womb, you can look at that baby and think, this is all to bring this life. This is meaningful pain for this baby. And it actually helps you focus on the joy that is to come. Sometimes we as people get caught in cycles of focusing on pain. What if instead we each had a focal point? We each had a picture of the future kingdom that we are heading to to focus on, a vision of what will one day be, 
a reminder that this pain is worth it because creation is being rebirthed and we will one day experience the immeasurable joy of being made new. If we did this, if we each had a focal point, a vision of what will one day be, I think that we would see our pain differently. Our sadness will still exist. Our deep longings and our deep sorrows, they will still be present. I'm not saying that we sugarcoat those things with like forced happiness or rote one-liners, but I think in doing this, in remembering the promises of Jesus, we would encounter hope in the midst of sorrow. I think that we would actually see Jesus with us in the mess. So we can look to the future, focusing on the day when cancer will no longer exist, the day when we are reunited with those who have passed before us, the day when our bodies will function without pain, the day when broken relationships are mended and we are fully restored, not only to God, but back to one another as well. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. He set his mind on a focal point. He set his mind on the joy of restoring people back to God as he endured physical pain. Hebrews 12.2 says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. On the cross, Jesus also endured meaningful pain. He experienced immense pain and suffering in order to set us free. He set his mind on the hope of the future, the joy of humans being restored back to God as he endured suffering on the cross. And so we can endure suffering now when we remind ourselves that our best days are before us. Not in a false optimistic way, but in a true steadfast belief that the resurrection is coming. The kingdom is coming in its fullness, and we hold on to this hope. Sometimes we do find ourselves in these difficult seasons of pain and sadness and loss. And other times we might not be in a particularly difficult season. But even so, there is something within each of us that points to a discontent with the world, a discontent with our lives as we know them to be. Jeff Crosby writes in his book, The Language of the Soul, about a Portuguese word that they say in Brazil almost daily. It's very common in their conversations. And this word is saudade. It is largely untranslatable. There is not another word in the English language that's like it. But as people have tried to give a definition to it, they've defined it as a vague and constant desire for something that does not and possibly cannot exist, for something other than the present, a turning toward the past or toward the future, not an active discontent or poignant sadness, but an indolent dreaming wistfulness. In Brazil, they discuss this often because they recognize that there is a normalcy to experiencing that something is off, that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Saudad bubbles up for us randomly often and it alludes to missing but also to longing, but it's much more complex than those things. It's always there in us deep down and it can surface without warning. 
It's like an unexpected trigger of a thousand things. And as Jeff writes in his book, he dives into different examples of Saudad. Um, these are the examples that he talks about that we all experience. The longing for home, the longing for an undivided self, the longing for forgiveness received and extended, the longing for friendship, the longing for spiritual transformation, the longing for peace, the longing for community, the longing to be freed from an unhealthy fear and anxiety, the longing for meaningful work, and the longing for heaven, our heart's true home. We all long for something. Ultimately, we long for what was in the garden before the fall, and we long for what will be in the new creation, in the resurrection. And as Paul continues on in Romans, he expounds on the idea of how to endure the suffering here on earth, how to live with the saudad. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So Romans 8.28 is an often overused, misinterpreted verse. Um, I see this verse everywhere. When I go into Hobby Lobby, it's on plaques. Um, you can go on Amazon and buy a mug um, and sip your morning coffee with this verse on it. Um, I hear people say it often. I say it sometimes. And so if we are going to be people who both receive and offer this verse often, then we need to understand what Paul meant when he said it. When I was 18, um, my mom passed away. Um, and I was not a Christian at that point. I was not a follower of Jesus. And so uh, her, um, she had cancer. And so during her uh, sickness and then ultimately her death, it caused me to ask a lot of spiritual questions. And I went on a spiritual journey and ultimately landed in faith in Jesus. And my life was radically transformed. Several years after I came to faith, my dad also began asking spiritual questions as a result of losing my mom. And his questions led him on a spiritual journey and eventually led him to faith in Jesus. And around that time, in those early years of me being a Christian, people said to me that my mom died so that I could come to faith, that that was God's plan, and they used Romans 8.28 to back up this idea. Was that true? I was a young Christian, and so I mostly believed them, but something didn't sit quite right with me. Then a few years ago, a book came out, um, and this book was like all over the headlines. It was everywhere, and I think because it had a very provocative title that was called, I'm Glad My Mom Died. Um, and I, I didn't read the book. I honestly have no idea what the book's about, but when I read the title, it caused me to pause, and I thought, should this be my theology? Should I be glad that my mom died? No, I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 8.28. This theology that God makes bad things happen so that good things could happen is a cruel distortion of who God is. I have heard people reason that God gave them chronic pain so that their prayer life would increase. I've heard people reason that God took away a loved one so they could come to faith, or God brought suffering so they would trust him more. Our God is one who takes what is bad and brings good out of it. Our God is one who takes what is dead 
and makes it alive. He is a God of resurrection. Our God is not one who creates harm in order for good to prevail. He is one who takes the brokenness and redeems it for his glory. He brings something good out of it. And so when life goes wrong, we can trust that God is good. As he is making creation new, he can also make our situations new. It does not say that the situations are good, but that the results could be made good. We live in a broken, fallen world, and one day that won't be so. God is making all things new, and the kingdom will come one day in its fullness. But until that day, sin is here, death is here, brokenness is here. But God is so good that he wouldn't leave it at that. Instead, he takes the bad and he redeems it. He takes the bad situation and he turns the results good. Is the situation still broken? Yes. But the results can be made good. Our God is one who weeps with us in the brokenness. He is also sad that my mom died young. Death was never part of God's plan. It didn't exist before the fall. And one day, death will be no more. God is one who says, I am so sorry that this happened. I am so sorry that you are living in this brokenness, but I will bring good out of this if you let me. So what then is the good that Paul is referring to? We can look at the next two verses to see that, verses 29 and 30. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right understanding with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Verses 29 to 30 are what God is working out in these situations of our lives. Everything that happens can be used for our ultimate sanctification and holiness, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. The good that Paul talks about is character change. This verse doesn't mean that it will become comfortable or easy, but that all things can be used for our transformation. We are always being spiritually formed. Every minute of every day, we are being spiritually formed. We have choices of what we say and do and think. There is no neutrality in spiritual formation. The question is, are you being formed more like Christ or are you being formed more like the world? We're always being spiritually formed. So Romans 8, 28 to 30 is saying, we live in a broken world. We live in the already but not yet. And as terrible things happen in this broken world, our God is so good that he wouldn't just leave it there, but he would actually resurrect those things. He'd bring good out of those things. He would use those things to form us into his image. One day, we will live in a world where no bad will ever happen. God will ensure that. But until that day, we live in a place where God brings beauty from chaos. He brings good from bad and life from death. What is causing you to groan? What is currently sparking your experience of Saudad? If you've been tempted to gloss over it with fake optimism, don't. Lament it. Jesus laments it. But a question for you to ask Jesus is, how is this situation being used to form you more into Christ's image? 
How is it increasing in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? How are you more in step with the Spirit as a result of this hardship? Paul continues on in verse 31 and says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Paul is saying that despite living in this broken world and facing many sorrows and terrible circumstances, we do not have to live bound to fear and worry. Why? Because through it all, God is good and he loves us. And he loves us so much that Jesus came to suffer and die for us. And we don't have to fear because God is redeeming this world through Jesus and making it new. Will we still have trouble, calamity, persecution, hunger, and danger as we live in the already but not yet? Yes. Those things are the fabric of this current world that is bent toward death and decay. But because God loves us, they don't have the final say. We will experience a world one day where those things no longer exist. Is it still tragic when we experience loss? Yes, but we can have hope. When my mom died, I didn't know Jesus. I didn't have faith in him, and that left me lost and in despair and wrestling with depression. Now my dad is battling stage four cancer. And as time has gone on and we've been having conversations about his treatment and his wishes, I have found myself also faced with the reality that my dad will die one day. Will I deeply grieve the loss of my dad? Yes. But now that I do have faith in Jesus, I will also be able to hope for the day when we are reunited again in the resurrection. Knowing Jesus doesn't make our lives pain-free, but our faith gives us hope for what will one day be. Knowing Jesus and beholding Jesus transforms our pain into a beautiful hope for the future. Christ's love for us holds us through the storms of life. So from an eternal perspective, the only thing that would truly harm us would be to be separated from God. So the central question to the Christian life is not will there be trouble, because there will be, but is there anything that can separate us from Christ's love? Paul's answer that we read next, of course, is no. He says, and I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life. He said, nothing in the human experience can separate us from God's love. Neither angels nor demons, nothing in the spiritual realm can separate us from God's love. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, nothing in time, present or future can separate us from God's love. 
Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, nothing in space, neither height nor depth can separate us from God's love. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us, nothing. Why? Because God loves us simply because it's his choice, not because of anything in us which can change or anything around us which could change, but he loves us just because he chose to love us. Imagine if we as Christians lived every day with this mindset, this hope of the kingdom coming, this knowledge of Christ's unending love for us, so many of the hardships we encounter in this broken world could be resurrected for good. God can use anything in our lives to form us more into his image. How would our grief when we lose those closest to us be transformed? Our hearts will still break in the present moment, but we can turn our gaze longingly to the day when we will be reunited. They can make us long for the promise of eternity together. How would our thought patterns shift when our bodies don't function the way that they're supposed to? When we experience chronic pain or brittle bones or mental health issues, I imagine that we might look longingly to the day when our resurrected bodies can do all the things that we ever hoped and dreamed pain-free. To the day when our resurrected brains fire neurons and patterns that allow us to think, feel, and move in all of the ways we always hoped that we would. Our current broken bodies can make us long for the resurrection. How would our conflicts within the church look different? I can imagine that as Paul wrote this letter to the Jewish and Greek believers in Rome, that he was crying out for them to put their conflicts aside long enough to reorient toward a vision of a world with no broken relationships. Suddenly, even our big problems can feel rather small when we consider that we will be celebrating together one day at the banquet table. They can make us long for a day when broken relationships will be no more and we are together in perfect unity. They can make us more kind, more gentle, more forgiving. When we learn to live in the lament of this present world, yet focus our eyes on the kingdom of the future, we can become people of hope. We might still be people who experience pain, both emotional and physical, but hope and lament are not mutually exclusive. As we behold Jesus and hold on to a focal point of the future kingdom that is to come, we can hold on to hope and lament together. What is causing you to groan at the moment? And what picture or promise of future hope in Jesus do you want to hold on to through the pain? We're gonna spend some time this morning listening to Jesus about those two questions. You have a card on your seat that has those. Um, and so the worship team will come up and play some instrumental music and you can just listen to Jesus and, and write what you feel like he's saying to you there about those things. And then after you have some time in prayer, I'm gonna invite you to come up to the altar, to enter into community with Jesus together and maybe come to the prayer ministers that are on the left or the right and bring your card with you and have them pray over that thing that you wrote. 
Um, and as we go into this time, if you have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, that is your first step this morning. Our first step to becoming people of hope is to come into the relationship with the one who can set us free. To enter into relationship with the one who has paid the price for our sin. Setting your mind on the hope of spending eternity in his perfect presence. So if that's you and you'd like to choose to follow Jesus for the first time, um, I'd like you to pray this prayer with me as we go into this time and everyone else can pray um, along with me and then uh, go into a time of listening to Jesus as you fill out your cards. Jesus, we thank you, God, that you would choose to suffer and die for us in order to restore us back to yourself. God, thank you that as you create us into new beings, you're also creating this whole world new. And one day we will live together with you and one another in perfect unity. God, I repent of the ways that I have not chosen to follow your commands, and I choose to turn my life toward you and to follow you all the days of my life. I pray this in your name. Amen.